Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. This time we're talking about the, the crisis of Christmas must be king. When I'm talking about being king, really more about in your hearts, because if we just him being king, king. That, that's a done deal. We don't really get a say in that matter. But um, as far as how we submit to him and who he is and the relationship with him, that's something that we can really work on every single day of our lives. So this will be coming from Matthew chapter 2. We'll read the whole thing. This is um, after he has been born. Um, so this is the wise men, the magi have come to see him, and then also King Herod's plot to kill him. So we'll read it. Most of the thoughts will come from verses 1 through 4, um, just the first four verses, but we'll still kind of spot check the rest of them and, and reference them as we need. So I'll read them. Paul, if you just want to kind of scroll through as I read, I'll start at verse 1 here from the ESV. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, some may say, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And, o, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring, him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. <clears throat> and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, and his, with Mary his mother. Then they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." All right. Well, we're at 16. Yeah. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Final verses here. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought, to, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. All right. That was a lot. That was a lot. Um, so first off, right, we have... Um, taking it back up to one, we have these wise men, these magi. Um, we don't know exactly who they are, how many of them there were, what the star was, when they saw it, where they saw it. If, you just, if you're in the airport and you need to kill some time for a layover, you can spend hours and hours on YouTube looking into all these theories on these things. And a lot of them make sense, and they're God-glorifying, Scripture-magnifying. You may take one personally, uh, but at the end, they are just theories on these things. But what we do know is that they came to Jerusalem looking for the child. And this kind of really made sense for them. If you hear that a king was to be born in Israel, it would really make sense for you to go, of all places, go look in Jerusalem. They probably maybe have expected he would be in a palace somewhere, maybe in the, the prince's quarters with a fancy bed and whatever they had for AC at the time and purple lavender sheets. But they get there and they find out that this child is not there. And they, not only they find that he's not there, but they're told that he's in little town of Bethlehem. And the wise men, the magi, they don't say, oh, well, forget it. You know, he's not where we want him. This isn't, why would a king be there? He's surely not a king. They pack up, they go to Bethlehem, and they find him, and they worship him there. Um, so what I really want to look at that for just a second is just for us to consider um, how often we have an expectation of God where he'll be, Jerusalem, what he'll be like, Jerusalem. And then sometimes we find out where he actually is, Bethlehem. We find out what he's actually like, Bethlehem. We don't really like that too much. We have this expectation of what God's going to do in our life and our situation, Jerusalem. And then what we actually get is Bethlehem. And as a lot of times Christians, that throws us, right? You may have been applying for a job, a fancy job, and you've gone on interview one, two, and three, and then you don't get the job, and now you're just, we're just thrown. We're like, what happened, God? Why would you drag me along? Why would you put me through that process if I wasn't going to get the job? Almost as if, like, he owed it to you, like he did you some wrong by pulling you through that process. You know, why wouldn't you just end it at the beginning if I wasn't going to get the job? Because the truth is, we wouldn't have been any happier if you'd have got dismissed on interview one. You'd have been like, God, why did you, you know, we would have some issue no matter what when we're focusing on self. When you're focusing on self, you're almost always going to have an issue with God's plan, right? A lot of times we think we're in this room, whatever that room is, with the BMV, a school, that job interview. The reason you think you're in that room is often the reason why you want to be in that room. You know, it's never, what, what does God want me to do here? In your mind, you maybe I'm headed to this grocery store. I think I've said this before, to get this one particular item um, that's only at this store, and that's what your mind on. And you don't know God has you there to meet that person from high school, right? Maybe you're stressed out, they're stressed out, but the two of you are supposed to talk, but you see them, and you're like, they're annoying me, or this is awkward because of this, this, this back in high school, and someone asks, how are you doing? You lie, and you say, I'm fine, and then you actually go to get the item you get. It's not there, and you think the trip was a failure, a waste. I drove all this way because in your mind, it's what did I want to get done right here? 
You never know what kid is watching you in a corner and seeing. They, they may have never seen someone treat their wife the way you're treating them right now with the respect. They may have never seen someone out in the, in the BMV when they're expecting, oh, this, this, this employee is about to get cussed out, some crazy, and then you don't do that. They may say, oh, that, that was something different. You don't know who's watching you. You know, sometimes you're a teenager, you go out and try out for a sport team, an orchestra, whatever it is, and you don't get it, and we're like, why, why didn't I get that? And I think what's not said enough, at least from the pulpit, is you know, sometimes I think we weren't ready for that spot. Right? It's like, God, why didn't I make the team? Because you don't practice. <laughs> right? That's why you didn't make the team. And this is like the simplest, most practical way like God can just show you you don't practice enough. You don't make the team. Why didn't I get into the school? You don't study enough. You're not a good enough student. If this is for your good. You would drop out had you gone to this school, even though this is what you really, really wanted. And I think the, the big picture here is when we're not focused on self, God wants to know, it's like, look, if your intention is to worship me as king, as God, it doesn't matter whether you find me in Jerusalem or Bethlehem. If you came to church with the intention of worshiping God, right, it doesn't matter, right? Now, if you came to intention to this church with the intention to hear Pastor Costin preach um, and to hear the full choir for three full songs, you might leave here disappointed. But if you came to worship God, you got, you got God glorifying songs. The, the jury's still out on me about what the sermon's going to turn into, but the intention is to show you that Christ must be king. Yeah, and... And so sometimes, you know, we approach a situation, if you're, again, if you're a teen, you say, I'm only going to thank God if and only if I get this scholarship. Well, you may be disappointed. If you're coming to a situation with the mindset, I'm, I'm prepared to worship God as God and King, if and only if Grandpa gets released from the ICU, and then you get that bad news phone call, you might be tempted to question who God is. I don't say that lightly. Some of you know our story. We lost four, four pregnancies. And the fourth one, our baby boy, Shay, we, we really thought we were going to keep Shay. Um, so what's going on? It's about week eight of the pregnancy. Something happens. We think it's a miscarriage. And so we go to the doctor, and they do some blood draws. Uh, don't, don't quote me on the medical accuracy of this, but just follow the story. And they're, they're testing these, these hormone levels, these H, HCG, I think is what it was, just to see is it dropping from whatever it should have been, from 100 to 30 to 6? Essentially, they're testing to see that this pregnancy zeroes out, and then we can move on to the next step, that you actually have officially lost this baby. And then we get this phone call from the, the doctor's office saying, hey, we don't know how this happened, but these numbers tripled since your last visit. And already we're like, oh, this Jerusalem, right? This is, this is our miracle baby. We don't know how this happened, how why this happened, but we're going to be able to have this baby by some crazy way this is going to work out. And we're looking forward to this. So we get out the 12-week mark. The doctor's told, hey, this is kind of your safe zone for, you know, some pregnancy complications. We get past the 17 mark, which is a big deal. That was when we lost the first kid. And then uh, actually probably right around this time, exactly two years ago to the date, um, her water breaks. I'm rushing to the doctor. I'm running all these lights of Georgetown and 79 trying to get to St. Vincent. And we get there, and the doctors are pretty much telling us there's no way this baby makes it. You're probably going to have it in the next couple hours, and we'll send you home. 
And then we do the ultrasound, and baby's still there, heart beating. We're like, it's the miracle child. And then day one passes, baby's still alive. Day two passes, they're like, any time now, baby's still alive. And day three, when they realize this child's hanging on, they start talking to us about keeping the kid. And they start, hey, we're going to move you to, like, this special unit. Here's all these moms who have been here because their water broke at week 20, 21, 23. And they start making plans for us to come back in, like, a week and just move into the hospital for, like, eight weeks. And we're talking to friends about money and food and these different things because we're about to be living. I dropped the ITS class I was taking. I'm not about to study from the hospital. Um, and then they send us home, and everything's looking good. And December 23rd, baby passes. And it's like, just like that. All this miracle baby hope that we thought was going to happen, right? We go leave Jerusalem real quick. And it doesn't even seem like we... Went to Bethlehem and went to uh, Gary, Indiana. It's like, why? <laughs> like, why? How did this happen? <laughs> and just like, just like those three interviews, you may be thinking to yourself, well, God, if, if this was going to be the outcome, why didn't you just let this happen at week six and week eight? Why drag us through all this? Why do that? And, you know, there's not always an answer for that. But I can tell you, when we did get to where we we're going to be and, and found and met God, he was still God. He was still king. He was still good. We were sad. And he was still fully deserving of all our worship. He was. And I know that's, that's, that's tough to ask of someone else. I can tell my story all day long. You can say, good for you. But truly, he's, he is God and king whether you find him in Jerusalem or Bethlehem. So the story goes along. Herod the king hears this, right? The, the, the language used there, not necessarily, it leaves the door open that the Magi didn't go straight to him, that they may have actually been asking around and word kind of been getting around about this. So verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Um, so to fully get this, like, why was Jerusalem trouble? I have to give you some, some Herod history here, so bear with me a couple minutes as I do that. Um, Herod had a dad. This is, this is his dad in the lower corner there. His name was Antipater. We'll just call him dad. Uh, for the, Antipater's a mouthful. But dad was a big deal. He was in Roman government. He was a policymaker. He was an advisor to kings and governors and all these different things. He was known as a great warrior. He was known for having these battle scars all over his body and being real wise and making um, political decisions. And then one day, he befriends a man named Julius Caesar, right? And when he does that, he goes from being a big deal to a real big deal, right? And there's even a story of him maybe even saving Caesar's life. So Caesar really takes to dad, makes him a Roman citizen, gives him all these high fancy titles, and dad puts his sons on. He makes Herod the governor of Galilee, the area where Jesus would grow up in Nazareth and Cana, and he makes Herod's brother the governor of Jerusalem. And as well, what happened in this situation, people don't like dad's ascension, and someone poisons him and kills him. Um, and up to this point, a lot of the things you heard about King Herod were all right, but after his dad gets killed, his character seems to take a far, far turn. Um, he tells the public um, 
that I accept this man's apology, that I don't think he killed my dad. He holds this feast for him, and then he takes him with his friends out for like a walk on the beach to see the land. And the next morning, history says they found this man with many wounds dead. Um, and so Herod takes this guy out. And then Herod's brother dies, and he goes and takes that guy out. And then he's trying to take his brother's spot as king of Jerusalem. And anyone who was next in line to have that spot, Herod has killed. And if he doesn't have them killed, he goes and makes friends with their enemies in other countries, maybe takes a wife to, to secure that friendship, and they get their armies together and go attack this guy. And Rome actually likes this. So they, they give Herod the title, check this, king of the Jews even though he actually isn't the king. There's, there is another king in Judea at the time. Familiar situation. Um, of course, Herod ends up attacking that guy and taking the throne, but when he gets the throne, um, he hears these rumors that some of his sons may be trying to um, uh, go against him. So what's he do? Has his sons killed. He hears rumors that his wife may have cheated on him or that his, his wife was upset with how he was treating her brother, has his wife killed. Has an, he goes on vacation, has enough, has, puts an order in, in case I die on vacation because someone else attacked me, kill my wife also in case she was the one behind it, trying to get the plan. Right? So he was, Herod was crazy. <laughs> um, so when Jerusalem hears that someone's trying to take Herod's spot, they're troubled because, like, somebody's about to die. This man is a loose cannon. He cannot be held in check at all. Um, but also, I don't care how crazy you are, somebody likes you. Herod did good things for the people. He relieved some taxes um, for, for different countries. He sent money to neighboring countries, rebuilt cities. He rebuilt the, the, the temple that they worshiped in. Um, so people liked Herod. And just like us, there was also kind of some rumors that if the Messiah were to come back, there would be some, some things not so peaceful. So there was just trouble in Jerusalem for many reasons, just hearing that there's a potential another king of the Jews. Now, what about Herod? Why is he trouble, right? He could just kill anybody he wants if there's a real issue. So the low-hanging fruit there is that a He's a sitting king. Here's about another king. No one wants to hear that. But again, when you look at the situation, Herod is about 70-something when Jesus is born. That means just from a human perspective, practical sense, unless he planned to live and be king past 100, Jesus never actually posed any real threat to him. But what I believe, Herod's idol was being king of Jerusalem. Herod wanted to have this land his dad gave to him and his brother. As you can see, he would have done anything for it. There's no one he wouldn't have killed. We, in the history, he kills his grandpa. He kills his brother-in-law, sons, wives. There's no one safe if he wants to be king or wants to remain king. There's nothing he wouldn't do. And if we could interview the little boy inside of Herod, we'd probably see he probably just wanted to be like his dad, to be honest. He probably wanted his dad to see him become king. He probably wanted this man who was the advisor to Julius Caesar to look at him one day and say, look, son, you've become a great king. I'm proud of you. And it never happens. And you see in Herod's history, once his dad has killed, peace was just never an option for him at that point. Um, and so, you know, a, uh, a historian may want to look at uh, Herod and just say, well, he was just crazy. We'll let them do that. But as Christians, we have to look at there's always something deeper behind our sin. 
right? We should be the least surprised when someone, when a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian. That should be our expectation. We should be the least surprised when there's a sinful response to godliness. And I say godliness because he, he should have been happy about Jesus being born. This was good news. This was, this was the king. This was the, the savior of the world. This is the person who's going to come, forgive everyone's sins, make peace in the land. There's no sickness and all these prophecies about him. Like, this should have been good news. And yet, Herod's response is, kill him and anyone his age, just in case we don't get him. Right? And... And similar, we may ask when we're sharing the gospel with a coworker, why would someone respond so angrily to an act of love? Why would someone be so hostile to God? But we have to understand light is naturally opposed to darkness. As me and my wife were talking about this last night, she says, I wrote it down. Um, she says, the moment you encounter Christ is the moment something has to change. It's Carrie Jones. The moment... <laughs> you encounter Christ. It's not Danny Diaz. The moment you encounter Christ is the moment you realize something has to change, right? And so, and, and we feel that, right? We realize I got to make a decision whether I reject him or accept him, right? Within the heart, we feel the Christ of Christmas and ourselves both wanting to be king, but there's only one throne. And unless Christ changes your heart, your idol will do anything, to keep that throne. Anything. That's its top priority. And this isn't just a, a thing for non-Christians, even that's what we're talking about. In the, the book Christmas Uncut, there is a there's a passage there I took a screenshot of. This is the author speaking. Um, they say, so when it comes to the turf on my own life, I have a choice. I can accept Jesus' rule, worshiping him as king, like the Magi, or I can resist and refuse the rule, like Herod. Naturally, I choose the second option, to resist. Um, I rule my own life. I rule my own life. I sin. But because I was brought up to have manners, I do it politely. Mm. That's in that, that Christmas Uncut book, if you haven't gotten to it. I hadn't gotten to it. Carrie saw it and brought it to me. I was like, that's good. Um, um, but... What does it look like to deny God politely? Because we do do this, right? A lot of times we're in Bible study, we're in church, and we see something and it's presented. Oh, this is what a mature Christian does. And we just look at that and say, well, I guess I ain't a mature Christian then, right? We say stuff like, I'm not there yet. God knows my heart. He's still working on me. And sometimes that's true, and there's a natural part to, like, acknowledging your, your, where you are in, in, in sanctification. But sometimes, for some of us, if we were to look inward, what we're really doing is just flat out admitting, I believe God, I'm going to give him my life, but there's a particular area in my life that I will not be dethroned in. Right? It's something we maybe even as a student say, I'm going to school, if someone hits me, I'm hitting them back. I don't care what that Bible says because I will not be dethroned in this area. The time comes, the opportunity comes, I'm going to have sex with this person. I don't care what that Bible says. I'll ask for forgiveness later, because I will not be dethroned in this area of my life. And when we just flat out reject what's God, the, the good things God have for us in life, we're being like Herod. And that may be offensive. We say, I'm not Herod. You know, I'm not ordering anybody to be killed. And sure, you may not 
have put an execution order out on your teacher, but if you sit there in class and say, if they disrespect me, I'm going to disrespect them, you are rejecting the good thing God has put in your life. You may not order your spouse to be executed like Herod, but you may ignore them. You may say the idol of whatever it is, pride, status, money, work, says, I need to get this promotion. And if my, if my husband or if my wife is upset that I'm working too much, or they don't get to see me, they won't go on dates anymore, they'll just be happy when the bills are paid. And they'll see that it was worth it. And we said, I will not be dethroned. My idol is going to get its way in this part of my life. I'll come to church but I ain't going to that marriage conference because I don't want anybody throwing scriptures at me, talking about how I should, what I should, and shouldn't be doing better. And it comes down to it, sometimes we know what the Bible says. That's, that's not a question for some of us, right? And we don't do it because we realize it's going to make us give up something that we want to keep doing. It's going to make us give up something we want to keep doing. And sometimes when you look at um, someone who's hearing the gospel for the first time, maybe it's not necessarily something they want to keep doing, but it's something that for them, it's like, I don't even understand how can a good God be asking this of me. And I think this is where our compassion needs to come in. Take the situation here. Just imagine you were these, these parents of these kids who got murdered in Bethlehem, right? I mean, Bethlehem wasn't New York City, right? It, eventually word would have got out what happened and why. And you can just imagine being in Jerusalem for a festival and be like, oh, there's Mary and Joseph. They're the reason why my kid's dead. Oh, and their kid's alive? Oh, and that's their kid preaching in the synagogue saying he's the son of God and that we need to worship him? And he's the reason my kid is dead? And on top of that, I'm looking at verse 17 and 18 saying, wait, this was a prophecy? God knew about this? Did he plan this? Did he, did he just allow it to happen? We don't know. But when you look at it, it's obvious he was in control of the situation. Right? And when you, when you look at everything that happens in Matthew chapter 2, everything was either an order from God in a dream or a prophecy being fulfilled. Go down the line. Verse 5. Right? Um, what do we have here? Uh, Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Verse 5. It's to fulfill what's written by the prophet, land of Judea. Verse 12, being warned in the dream that uh, the wise men are told to go another way. Immediately after that, verse 13, Joseph appears to, uh, the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, take the child to Egypt. Because of verse 15, this will fulfill what the Lord said, I'll call my son out of Egypt. Verse 17, sorry, verse 16, order Herod orders the, orders the children to be killed to fulfill verse 17, the prophet, and verse 18, a voice in Ramah. Immediately after that, Herod dies, and the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, take the child back to Israel, raise him in Nazareth, because of verse 23, this will fulfill what was said by the prophets. Top to bottom, in control. Either direct word in a dream or fulfillment of a, prof of a prophecy. So if he's this in control, what's the plan? What's the plan? Matthew gives us a clue what the plan is. And the clue is in verse 2, when Jesus is called king of the Jews. We see this particular phrasing here that Matthew doesn't use again until at the end of the book in Matthew chapter 27. What's going on in 27? 
Jesus is being, uh, this is the scene where Jesus is, they, they pick Barabbas to be released um, over Jesus. They tell Pilate, we want him crucified, and then he is crucified, killed, and buried. Um, so we got Matthew chapter 2, where Jesus is born, and Matthew 27, where he's killed, connected by this particular use of this phrasing, king of the Jews. So what else is there? What else is there? Um, we have the, this Roman ruler who's been put in place, Herod, um, where uh, God tells Joseph in the dream, you need to leave because he's seeking to destroy Jesus, right? But then in 27, you have the, the Roman rule of Pilate who doesn't want to destroy Jesus. It's actually the Jewish leaders who want to destroy Jesus. Some in Matthew chapter 2, am I in a good spot? Matthew chapter 2, you have this Roman ruler who becomes furious and intentionally is sending to kill all these Jewish children. And then in 27, you have the Roman ruler Pilate says, I'm innocent. I don't want to kill these children. In fact, it's the Jewish leaders who say, his blood be on us and our children. Matthew 2, the, the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the people, they, you can see that they're believing and aware of who the king of Jews will be and where he'll be and these things that were written in the Bible. And then 27, these same people, the chief priests and the scribes, now mocking him. If you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel, save yourself. Come off the cross, then we'll believe you. Lastly, here we have the Magi. They meet Mary, they fall down on their knees, worship him, open their treasures, their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in 27, you have the Roman soldiers. They fall down on their knees, but it's to mock him as king of the Jews not to worship him as king of the Jews. Instead of offering him gifts, they're stripping his clothes and selling them amongst each other. Instead of giving him a crown of gold, they make this crown of thorns. Instead of this anointing oil of myrrh, he gets vinegar and, and wine on a stick to drink while he's dying on the cross. Instead of this fragrant frankincense to have as a king, he has spices wrapped around his dead body to be buried with. You see Matthew setting up this stage where the very evil thing that Herod was doing, the Jewish leaders who he came to save by 27 are now the ones doing this. It's a warning. When we're caught up in self, when we, when we want Jesus to be in Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem, when we try to make God in our own image, we will eventually reject Christ himself. We will become the very evil that we think is so bad. When we try to make Jesus who he is, we will reject Christ himself. And Jesus knew this. About midway through this section in Matthew 16, he's telling his disciples. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's telling, telling his friends, look, the, the plan is the opposite of everything happened in Matthew 2 from a certain perspective. This time, I will be in Jerusalem. This time, the chief priests and scribes will deny that I'm king of the Jews. The plot to kill me will succeed. Because the master plan was never just to save Jesus. It seems that way. When you look at the Bible, it looks that way, right? We have, oh, we need this, this seed of Eve to, to, to live, right? Uh, Abel's been killed. We need Seth. Uh, Abraham needs uh, a ram in the bush. 
It's like, we need Joseph to survive slavery. We need Joseph to go rescue Israelites out of famine. We need uh, Esther to to save the Israelites from genocide. We need this remnant to come back from exile. It looks over and over and over again like the plan is to just save Jesus. And Jesus is telling his friends, no, the plan was to save you. And Peter has a hard time with this, right? Because the plan doesn't sound good. He wants his friend to live, which understands. And so he took him aside. <laughs> and Peter says, far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. And God is saying, look, when you're focused on self and the plan that you think sounds good, you're going to start acting just like Satan. It doesn't matter really how the plan sounds to you, right? The master plan is to save us. And if we're looking at it from the human perspective, we can often get that wrong. Because we'll look at it and we'll say, oh, it looks like the master plan is to, to save for me to save money. And God said, nope, the master plan is to save you. Now, that may mean you not get the job you want. It may mean you're the wealthiest person in your family, right? If, it, if you are assessing the situation yourself and you say, the master plan is for God to save my athletic career, you'd say, the plan is to save you. That may mean your knee gets blown out in ninth grade and you never play again. It may mean you become the greatest athlete ever at your particular sport. But remember constantly that the plan is to save us. The master plan was for him to come and die and be our king and have a kingdom characterized by peace, love, forgiveness. That was the master plan. But God's plans aren't always received well as we see all through this chapter, all through the Bible, these good things that should have been good, they're not received well because we're assessing he's in Bethlehem when I want him in Jerusalem. For everyone here, God wants to be king in your heart. He came, oh, holy night, that special night to be born, not, not to run from death, but to go die, to save you so that you can be part of his people, part of his plan in this kingdom characterized by love and forgiveness. And we, we need to have compassion even when going out to the world and sending this message, even when we are met with evil, we even some like unspeakable things, wow, but this person do this, think this of a loving God. Remember, he did the same thing for you, right? So last thing I wanna do when I'm close, I want us to stand and read these four verses together. This is essentially a four-verse summary of the entire sermon, but I just figured it would make a little more sense after, our, after we've gone through everything. Um, this is from John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Um, the he is, is Jesus, okay? So together, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Amen. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.